0: Welcome to another episode of How to Read the Bible. I'm your host, Nate Claiborne, here today once again with Benjamin Camp. How are we doing, Ben?
1: Nate, doing well. Glad to have this episode together.
0: It, it's been a few weeks. I I was on spring break last week, which is no excuse to skip recording, but you were actually out of town. Mm-hmm. So tell us about
1: where you were last week. Yeah. So I went up to Birmingham, Alabama to a conference on the Psalms. Uh, I've, re- I've read those. <laughs> yeah. Good. I'm glad. Uh, and, and for most of our congregation, that won't be news that I would do something nerdy like that. Um, And and it was put on by this organization called the Theopolis Institute, which is in Birmingham. Okay. And the whole purpose of this week long course was to essentially immerse ourselves in the study, meditation, and even singing and praying of the Psalms. Um, And so it was excellent. We had a... um, Somebody I would call a master teacher. His name's Jim Hamilton. He's a professor at Southern Seminary in Louisville, who just got done writing a commentary, two-volume commentary on the Psalms. Okay. And uh, and so he he walked us literally from Psalm one to one hundred and fifty over the course of five days, um, three hours a day. We were doing this uh, together, and and he was teaching. Um, and it was even for somebody like me who's a an avid, I call myself an amateur lover of the Psalms because the original word amateur means, uh, it comes from a more, it's somebody Mm -hmm. who loves something or does something for the love of it. And I'm a, I'm a, I'm not a scholar by any means of the Psalms, but I'm an amateur scholar in that way.
0: No one's paying you to read the Psalms. That's right. Or
1: study them or write about them or... Spray them or anything like that. Uh, and, and so even for somebody like me, I was, my mind was blown at certain points, but how insightful um, some of the ways in which the, the biblical authors bring out um, the biblical worldview through the Psalms.
0: So t- tell us uh, a little bit more about the structure and then we can get to some of these mind blowing insights. So was it the same thing every day? Was it, you kind of had to, was there a liturgy we might say of yeah. the way the conference worked?
1: Yeah. So the Theopolis Institute, um, the the three kind of things they're about are Bible, liturgy, and culture. Um, and so those three things brought together are are really make make them unique in that way. And so, yes, there was actually a very thoughtful, intentional liturgy of the day. We got there at eight o'clock every morning, had um, breakfast together. 8.30, we began uh, matins, which is the, the morning um, essentially a morning worship service of sorts where we sang the Psalms, we uh, prayed liturgical prayers, we prayed the Lord's Prayer every day. Um, at, from nine to noon then, Dr. Hamilton taught on the Psalms. Um, at 12 o'clock, we went into our kind of noonday prayer time and, and worship. Um, that went from 12 to 1215. And then, from twelve fifteen to, to two, we had lunch together and in lunch, actually, at a certain point, um, somebody got up and, and gave a reading from one of the church fathers. so I actually read one day on uh, from um, it wasn't Saint. Augustine, but St. Augustine was read. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I was John Chrysostom or something like that. And then at, uh, from two to four, we essentially had choir practice. Um, and, and really what it was is we, we did the hard work that it takes to become essentially psalm singers. And so we were particularly singing the psalms in a unique way and unique to our congregation, um, but not unique in the history of the church. And that is we chanted the psalms. And by that, just all I want our hearers to hear is... Um, we let the text of the of the Bible, the text of the Psalms themselves, determine the way the songs were sung. So, in other words, there was not um, like metrical Psalms, is when they're kind of lyrically organized so that you so that the words rhyme because English poetry has a strong rhyme scheme. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is a different way of doing it, where the actual Psalm itself determines how the singing happens. So. in in certain times, we just opened up our ESV Bibles and we were just singing from the page uh, in that way. So that was really cool. Um, Not just cool, but it's arguably how Jesus probably sang the Psalms. Um, And that that was a powerful experience.
0: So you did that from two to four. And then was that Something after that? Or? And then
1: from four to five, um, Dr. Peter Lighthart, the president of the Theopolis Institute, um, somebody who you and I both learned from quite a bit, um, uh, in many ways has informed how we do this podcast. Uh, Dr. Peter Lighthart taught on the Psalms himself, um, and then from... 5 to about 5.36, uh, we had another pra- time of prayer and worship, um, and then from at 6 o'clock, we went and ate dinner together, and then after dinner, we all went back out to the Light home and just hung out until the wee hours of the evening. So it was a, a full day, but the liturgy was very intentional for community, for prayer, for study, for... Uh, I mean, it was intentionally designed for formation, mm. and, and I was really grateful for that.
0: So you, you say you, you ended up at the Light Arts Home. How many people are we talking about at this conference? Um,
1: probably somewhere between 15 and 20. Okay. So fairly small group of people. Um, but uh, what I really appreciated about that was... Um, I have lots of questions, <laughs> and so uh, I had opportunity access to be able to have really good, robust conversations with the professors and other students, which was really great.
0: So, is it? You would say it was a mix of professors and students. I mean, you mentioned Dr. Hamilton, Dr. Mm-hmm. Lightheart, and then there's fifteen to twenty. That's right. Participants, basically.
1: Yep. And then Paul Buckley was the was the one who led us in the singing, and so he he gave us a real robust history and even theology of singing the Psalms and then actually taught us how to do it. And and that was, that was his work and it was really helpful.
0: Okay. So in the morning time, it sounds like the meat of the teaching time was that nine to 12 with Dr. Mm Hambleton. We're talking Monday through Friday. So you're getting like 15 hours. Yeah on the Psalms, and you said he took you from Psalm 1 to 150. Mm -hmm. How did he go about doing that? What was... Kind of give us a feel for...
1: Yeah. Well, um, I had known about Dr. Hamilton because a friend of mine was a student of his at Southern Seminary and, and spoke incredibly highly of him as a professor. And then he also, um, was audacious enough. Dr. Hamilton was audacious enough to preach through the whole book of Psalms at his church. He's also a pastor. And so I've actually tuned in on, on many of his sermons on the Psalms and, uh, found them to be really insightful and helpful. So, um, so I wasn't, I, I didn't, I had never sat under his teaching before in, in a personal sense, but, um, when we got in there, I was, uh, like I said, my eyes were open to ways of seeing the psalms in in really helpful ways. So, one of the things that I think that uh, a foundational premise that he was working from was that these psalms, these songs are for this story. These songs are for this story. In other words, in the heart of our Bible is this hymnal or prayer book, you could say. Mm-hmm. But those those songs and those those prayers really only make sense in the story that begins in Genesis and and doesn't end until Revelation. And so a lot of what we were doing is what what could be called biblical theology, um, which is essentially working out the story of Scripture and how the Psalms, what role they play in that and how they contribute to it. And so one of the examples that I thought was so helpful and, and very similar to some things you and I have talked about here because we've talked about typology mm-hmm. and how patterns emerge in Scripture was he argued that, um, that David was reflecting on the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And as he was meditating on the Torah, because he's a Psalm 1 kind of man, which calls us to meditate on the scriptures day and night. As he meditated on the Torah, David began to see that there's this pattern that Joseph has and that Moses had, and that David himself self-consciously was fitting into that pattern. So the pattern is something like both Joseph and Moses, and then eventually David, um, were chosen by God for a calling to lead God's people. And then they were rejected by their brothers. And that resulted in a time of exile. And then that exile was ended by some sort of vindication. And then they rose and began to reign in, a, in, in that role of leadership that they were called to originally. So you think about Joseph, right? Joseph is um, the, the beloved of his father, and, and then he's rejected by his brother, sold into slavery. He goes through a really difficult season in Egypt. Mm-hmm. And then eventually he's, he's vindicated, and he raises up to, to the right-hand man of pharaoh himself. Um, and then he's able to, through forgiveness essentially redeem the narrative. And in him, it's a hinge that changes the whole narrative. And then he reigns on and, and creates this incredible place where the people have got the seed of Abra- or of Adam is able to survive. Um, and so then you've also got, Moses is a very similar story as well. And so then David knows that he was anointed in first Samuel 16. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he's on the run from Saul. <laughs> and, and so as he's on the run from Saul, he's been rejected by his own brothers. And, and it happens again in his life with Absalom, his own son, but then he's vindicated after that season of exile and takes over the reign and he reigns then as king as he was appropriately supposed to. So, so Dr. Hamilton's arguing that David had a typological way of reading the Bible. And so he self-consciously knew he was fitting into this Joseph and Moses type. And here's the next step from that self-consciousness knew that a son of his was going to sit on his throne and fulfill that same type. Allah, Jesus, the Mm. Messiah. And so that's why the the Psalms have such a a Christ-centered focus. That's why you can't read the Psalms properly unless you read them as finding their fulfillment in Jesus. And so David actually intends for us to read them that way because he saw himself as a type of this heir that was promised to him in 2 Samuel 7 that would sit on the throne that would would have an eternal reign on the throne of David.
0: Now, as you're as you're typing all that out, no no pun intended. Yeah, thanks. Um, <clears throat> I'm wondering, did, did Dr. Hamilton touch on? So, as I understand it, David's responsible for maybe 73 somewhere, somewhere less than half of the mm-hmm. Psalms. So, is it possible David's self-consciously kind of seen himself in this type? But it almost would have to be that the people who compiled the Psalms. Mm-hmm also saw that connection because there's so many Psalms. I mean, I even think of Psalm 110, mm-hmm. the one that gets quoted so much in the New Testament, I don't think is a Psalm of David.
1: Mm. Um, yeah, you're right. So so we did a, you asked, how did he walk us through that? Well, day one was basically a flyover from one to 150. Okay. I mean, it was honestly, it was masterful, the fact that he was able to do that because uh, let's just be real, the Psalms is a long book. The, mm-hmm. the Psalter has a lot to cover. And in that flyover, we talked about how um, many people might know this, that the Psalms are actually broken up into five books. Mm-hmm. And, and if you pay really close attention to the authors of the Psalms in each of the books, so David authors um, most, if not all of the ones in book one, all of the Psalms in book one, then if you pay attention to what happens at the seams of those books, so so book one is 1 to 41, at the seam from 41 to 42, the author actually switches, and now you don't have David authoring anymore, you have the sons of Korah in Psalm 42, and then you go 42 to, to um, 72, and then 72 is this Psalm of Solomon about this, this future king that would reign, and then you get from Psalm 72 to 73, and the author switches again, now you've got Asaph writing and then you go seventy three to eighty nine, and and uh, and when you switch to from eighty nine to ninety, you've got Moses is authoring that psalm, and so the authorial and uh, the authors of these psalms, the way it was stitched together, as you as you talked about the, the kind of compilers of the Psalter. Um, which could have been Ezra, it could have been somebody later in Israel's history that did this, um, they're intentionally placing psalms in, in really important ways in order to highlight some of these Davidic themes. And so they really did reflect on David's corpus, his writings, these psalms that he created, the sweet psalmist of Israel he's known as, and, and in reflecting on them and in compiling the Psalter, they are bringing that, that kind of story through all the way. And so in many ways, um, book one is about the, uh, you remember that typology I talked about earlier, book one is about David, how he's been chosen for this role, but he's kind of on the run in book one. Um, in many ways, are, there's a lot of laments, there's a lot of uh, save me, oh God. Um, I mean, the the first Psalm after the two-part introduction of Psalms one and two, first Psalm is really Psalm three, and David's on the run from him, his son Absalom. And so Book 1's really about David on the run. Book 2 there's some vindication that happens. Um he it, it kind of climaxes with his son on the throne uh with Psalm 72 which is about Solomon. And then uh book 3 really is uh you know Solomon isn't actually the king we wa- we needed him to be or that we wanted him to be. And so book 3 is is yeah there's this reign um but it actually isn't it isn't the end all be all. We really need another one to reign. And so book four is actually one that's probably designed for those in exile because it begins with a prayer of Moses and it's supposed to, and it also ends in Psalm 106 with a, with a there's a verse in Psalm 106, it might be verse 25, that talks about how Moses stood in the breach on behalf of Israel. And so Dr. Hamilton's pointing out that, that book ending of, Psalm, or of book four of the Psalms is really trying to highlight, hey, while you're in exile, intercede, repent. Pray, ask for ask for God's forgiveness, turn back. And then book um book five then is really about Yahweh reigning as king. And and that Yahweh is the true king that we've all been longing for. And yet as you, as you pointed out, Psalm 110, the most quoted Psalm in, in the New Testament, shows up really early on in book five. Mm-hmm. And it's this person who is both David and David's son, and uh, David's calling him Lord. And, and it's just interesting thing that's happening there. And so we haven't lost the Davidic throne, but we also know that Yahweh is the only true king we could ever hope for. And so even that kind of... Na- the, the Psalms themselves tell a story and it's highly edited in that way, highly curated, you could say, to tell that story. And, and, and it just pays close attention to the details of, of the text that you begin to see this story emerge. And you,
0: you would say with Hamilton writing, writing the commentary he wrote, preaching through all of them, he's kind of accumulated this wealth of insight. Totally. Just sitting in the Psalms for so long.
1: Yeah. And being the nerd that I am, I asked him about his methodology. I said, hey, so tell me how you came to write this commentary and preach through it. And uh, I, I think it's probably okay that I share this, but he he essentially read all of the Psalms in Hebrew. He started with Psalm 1, read it in Hebrew, um, did some kind of vocab work and, and made sure he understood what was going on in the Hebrew. Um, and then he listened to the Psalm and tracked along with his, in his Hebrew Bible in Hebrew, listened to a Hebrew recording of it 10 times before he then did that with Psalm 2. And so he... Read Psalm 2 in the Hebrew, became familiar with all the words that are used there, how the how the syntax, the grammar, how everything's working in that Psalm. Then he listened to it 10 times in Hebrew, reading along and making sure he could keep up pace. Then he'd move to Psalm 3. And so you can imagine the accumulative effect of doing that mm-hmm. Psalm after Psalm after Psalm. By the time he got to 150, he's able to see, oh, this Hebrew word that shows up here shows up here as well. Oh, let's look at that. And then and then he's drawing how the authors of the Psalms are actually making purposeful connections using phrases and, and words that maybe only appear in this Psalm and this Psalm. And so it's intended to actually cue the reader to say, hey, pay attention here. I'm making a point, um, which, which to kind of take a step back, something we've talked about before, all that that did for me was confirm that the Bible is meditation literature, that it really only discloses itself to people that will patiently, repeatedly attentively spend time dwelling in the text. And if you'll do that over time, that accumulative effect over time will actually amount to you being able to understand a lot of the intent behind what the authors are trying to convey.
0: It reminds me of a, <clears throat> a prof I had at Dallas that said biblical theology is an old man's game. Mm, um, I love that saying. Just the idea that you have to see texts over time and see how they, they interact with one another. That's fascinating about Hamilton's methodology. I I, I would imagine... In part, that's because by discipline, I believe he's a New Testament prof. Mm-hmm. And so he's. it's not that he doesn't know the Old Testament um, or knows Hebrew, because mm-hmm. like me, he did go to Dallas. That's so right. Those Dallas guys, you got to watch out for him. <laughs> you know the languages. That's right. We, we take those languages. Um, but it, it, as you were saying that, it made me think one of his... I was reading a book last week um, by a colleague of his at Southern, mm-hmm. uh, Dwayne Garrett. Mm-hmm. And he spends a section in the book talking about what he calls the elusive pattern. Mm. It's kind of his version of intertextual. He's he's not big on typology or intertextuality as they're commonly practiced, but mm-hmm. he argues for this thing called the elusive pattern, mm. which as he was explaining it, as I was reading, it, I was like, oh, this is just, it's still typology intertextuality, but mm. it's, it's linked to the words in the text, not... wow." concepts that maybe overlap and he he's got this whole thing about the use of the word headrest hmm. in the Jacob narrative hmm. and then it shows up again in the Elijah after his showdown on Mount Carmel wow um, and shows how the connections there and then they connect to Moses and uh-huh. so it makes me when you said he when Hamilton's going through the Hebrew he remembers this word here this word here mm-hmm. and it's only used in those two spots so there's that's right intentional connection so it's really it's typology and intertextuality that's really tied to the text, that's not right. tied to... Well, this just kind of popped into my head while I was reading
1: it. Yes, that's exactly right. And so the, the principle here is that the, the authors of the Bible are meditators on, on the Bible. And so, mm. so David is actually meditating on Moses's writings. And so when David goes to compose his Psalms, his brain has been built by Moses. And so an example of that um, is, well, this is actually, Psalm 90 is a psalm of Moses, but when when in, in Psalm 90, Moses says, um, return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. And so that, that kind of return and relent or return and have pity, that language, those are the same Hebrew words that Moses uses in Exodus 32 when he intercedes for Israel after they've created the golden calf. Um, and it's, it's language, I believe that's repeated again in Deuteronomy, um, when Moses essentially is saying, Hey, you guys are going to sin because your hearts need to be circumcised. And if you will repent, then the Lord will relent and, and, and he'll return and come back to you. And so it's things like that, where it, when you recognize that these words are being repeated, it's supposed to cue your attention and say, Hey, you remember that story back then? Now, when you're in exile, Israel, um, a long time after Moses, uh, when you're in exile, Hearken back to what Moses did, how he interceded, how he repented, how he asked for uh, Yahweh's forgiveness. Do that when you're in exile and the Lord will return and he will relent and he will bring you back into the land. And so just the way in which those theological points are made by Bible meditators, mm-hmm. uh, people that are familiar. they've um, you, We both know the word meditate in Psalm 1 is haggah, which has this kind of um, lingering and, and almost whispering the words of the text over and over and over again to yourself. And so I just am so helped by that because what I, what I don't want people to hear is, hey, if you don't know Greek and Hebrew, you're not going to be able to understand the Psalms. What I'm, that's not what we're saying. What we are saying is, um, yes, some people need to be trained in Greek and Hebrew because it really matters. But also, if you would meditate on the text of scripture um, over time, you will accumulate uh, a, a knowledge of what the Bible is getting at, and you'll be able to make these connections and understand things in, in really helpful ways and see what the biblical authors are really trying to... To point
0: out, yeah, yeah, that's a good word at the end. Just it's helpful if you know the original languages, but it's not absolutely necessary because the point is to just sit in the text. Mm -hmm. We have the Bible translated for us in English, and so you can do the same thing in an English Bible, um, and then maybe you explore further talk to someone who knows greek and hebrew they can confirm instincts that you picked up because mm-hmm. uh, even the thing i think i just mentioned about the headrest you could have picked that up in english mm-hmm. by re- meditating on the story of jacob and the story of elijah and then yeah. ask someone who knew hebrew to confirm is it actually the same word or That's is it just right. the same word in english but it was initially noticed in english
1: yeah which let the reader understand if if Ever you come up to a pastor and ask him about Greek and Hebrew, he's going to love that conversation. That's <laughs> because right. Yeah. Nobody asks those questions, and so uh that's the kind of things we nerd out about. E- exactly. Um, I I'll, I'll close with this quote because I thought this was really helpful summary of of the week for me. Um so the Psalms are actually war chants. There's a there's a lot of themes about enemy and and there's violence and people don't know what to do with that and and so um In a lecture on the imprecatory or cursing psalms, but that was also kind of a lecture on the politics of this altar, um, Dr. Peter Lightheart pointed something out that I thought was really powerful, and that is the psalms basically end in a a doxology from Psalm 146 to 150. Mm -hmm. And the second to last Psalm, 149, verse 6, says this, Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands. So, so the people of God are supposed to be those that have the high praises of God in in their throats and on their lips, and swords in their hands, uh, fighting back the dominion of the dominion of darkness, right? And actually, those because of um, parallelism, those are actually saying, arguably, the same thing, that the sword in our hands are these high praises in our throats, mm-hmm. that, that there's warfare that happens in the heavenly places, as, as Paul would say in Ephesians 6, when we take up the Psalms and sing them and pray them as the people of God, that's actually warfare in the heavenlies. And so on my way home, because um, I had about an eight and a half hour drive from Birmingham back to Orlando, uh, I listened to The Hobbit uh, on Audible. <laughs> and so I get to this quote from Tolkien And I just thought this was a great summary of my time. So this is towards the beginning of The Hobbit, and and this is what he says. As they sang, the hobbit felt the love of beautiful things made by hands and by cunning and by magic moving through him, a fierce and a jealous love, the desire of the hearts of dwarves. Then something Tookish woke up inside him, and he wished to go and see the great mountains and hear the pine trees and the waterfalls and explore the caves and wear a sword instead of a walking stick. And I think that's what this week did for me, is it made me want to wear a sword instead of a walking stick. As it comes to the warfare that we need to be fighting against, the the ways in which the dominion of darkness is encroaching all all the time in, in personal lives, in our church, in our culture, and actually taking up the Psalms and praying them and singing them and meditating on them is, in many ways, the form our warfare takes. And so we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities in the heavenly places. And the Psalms... Are the arsenal of our warfare
0: mm. so good <clears throat> well ben it was a pleasure chatting with you that was a great way to end it just uh inspiration to dig into the psalms even further so i look forward to talking with you next time
1: as always nate thank you